so uh, it's been a kind of a confusing and a difficult time for the church. And I think that many people feel as though in many ways the church or things about the church have been exposed due to this pandemic, due to the situation that we're in. Um, there have been many kind of controversies uh, surrounding the church. The church has been going through a lot of things, I think. I don't just mean like our church. I mean the church in general. Uh, I think across the board, particularly in America, I'm not sure what, this is, what these numbers are globally, but attendance is down. Um, I think giving is down. There have been several kind of controversies, <laughs> it seems, about things like masks, whether people should wear masks or not, about reopening, whether or not people should reopen their churches, whether it should be outside or inside. I'm not sure if you guys have followed the things going on with Grace Community Church and John MacArthur, but there's been a lot of things said and written about that, about racism, about injustice, about the protests, and uh, where's the church been on this stuff, and has the church been, you know, where they're supposed to be on a lot of these things? And I'm not sure, but it seems to me I have this suspicion that for many out there, for many Christians, or at least people who call themselves Christians, what is imagined to be the fully developed Christian life? Like what people imagine the fully developed Christian life, the fully lived out deeply embedded, heart-transformed Christian life, what many imagine that to be is a kind of angry, critical, almost miserable life. Which is a little bit strange, but I think I kind of understand because what happens is when you hear or read certain texts of Scripture... For example, you know, if you would come after me, anyone who would come after me must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. That kind of, you know, Mark 8, 34, like that. If you hear something like that, sometimes in Scripture, the way that we interpret it is that to follow Jesus <laughs> means to have a life of misery. This kind of begrudgingly accepting a boring duty-driven, guilt-imposed, angry, hypercritical, uber-religious life. And that's just what it means to be Christian. If you were actually super Christian, then that's what it would look like. It would look like that kind of life. I'm not sure if you've ever thought about that, if you've ever thought about what you think the kind of uber-Christian life is. And, but I do suspect that for many of us, we have this kind of feeling inside that that's kind of what it is, and that's why we're resistant to it. Like, I don't want to really go all the way into that because I still want to have fun, and I want to have an interesting life, and I still want to do the things that I want to do. And so we feel torn between having this fully committed life in Christ versus having a kind of half-committed, half-hearted life. Uh, 
But I will say, thinking that is ridiculous. Thinking that what God wants for you is some kind of begrudging or boring or angry or just critical, judgmental, religious followership, that that's what God wants. Why would God want that? Why would the creator of everything, and even if you're not a believer, let's just assume for a moment that God is who he says he is. He's the creator of all existence. He's the creator of everything, including joy and happiness and delight, like those things. God doesn't just have those things. God invented those things. Meaning we only know any joy that we know is a fraction of the joy that God knows. It's a shadow of the substance of God. And assuming that that's who God is, why would he want for us some kind of drab existence stripped away of all the flavor of life? How on earth would that make God seem glorious? Now, the simple answer is it wouldn't. And it isn't. And if that's not the case, then what is the case? What kind of life does God actually want for us? Now, getting at this answer today is going to be one of the keys of Christian life in general. And so it's, it's really important, I think, that we understand this. And that's what we're going to be looking at today. And we're going to be looking at kind of the, uh, the thesis for, for Philippians and part of the key to what Paul is saying in this whole letter. But this, the simple question, and it's the title of the message today, but what is to live is Christ? What does that actually mean? What does Paul mean by that when he says to live is Christ? And that's what we're going to be looking at today. And so if you have your Bibles, let's go ahead and open them up to uh, the book of Philippians. That's where we are, Philippians chapter 1, and we are going to read Philippians chapter 1. We're going to start in verse 20, uh, partly where we left off last week, and then we'll, um, or overlapping a little bit from last week, and then we'll go all the way through verse 26. And this is God's word, and it says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now as always Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ for that is far better but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Now, quickly, let's, let's look at the text again. If you look at verse 20, he says, As always, Christ will be honored in my body whether by life or by death. So, you know, if you remember in the previous passage, he's talked about how he's going to have this vindication because he is going to be um, ultimately proved right in Christ. He will be saved 
by it will turn out for his salvation, even though at the current moment there are these people who are criticizing him, there are these people who are preaching the gospel out of envy and rivalry. So these people are coming against him. And, you know, to be imprisoned for Paul, we may not quite understand due to how we might think about this today, but in that time, it would make Paul appear to be kind of a failure. Like, oh, he's been imprisoned, you know, he, and it would be shameful that he has been imprisoned. And so Paul's saying, it's going to turn out, it's going to turn out for my vindication, and as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And then verse 21, he says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So he's saying, this is how Christ will be honored in my body, that is to say, in his life, whether he lives or whether he dies, because for him to live is Christ and to die is gain. So quickly, how will Christ be honored in Paul's death? How will Jesus be glorified if Paul dies? Well, he'll be glorified because Paul considers dying gain. And I'm not going to really go through this too much. We could do a whole message just on this idea. But what Paul is saying is, in death, I will glorify Christ because I consider Jesus better than everything I would lose in death. Now that alone is a crazy statement because in death you lose everything that you've ever known. Like life, you know, experiencing things, tasting things, touching things, you know, seeing things, like everything you know about life, your loved ones, your relationships, everything you've ever enjoyed in life will end in death. At least the way that you experienced it in life. But what Paul is saying is because I'm in Christ and I get to be with Jesus, that's far better than everything else in life combined. So even if I lose everything that I've ever known of life, I consider death gain because I get to be with Christ. Now the logic at least is understandable, even though it's incredibly, I don't know if we can say that necessarily. I don't know if we'd be able to say that with Paul. Theoretically, it's what we believe, but Paul in his actual life lives that, and so we can see the logic. Jesus will be glorified even if Paul dies, because even in death, even as he's, as he's approaching death, and even in his own death, he was martyred ultimately and his, in his own death. I'm sure he welcomed it because he could be with Christ. So we get what he means by to die is gain. Now, what does he mean by to live is Christ? To live is Christ. So a couple things. Here is the first thing. For Paul, to live is Christ means to live for the purpose of putting the supreme glory of Jesus on display. To live as Christ means to live for the purpose of putting the supreme glory of Jesus on display. Now, Paul is confident after saying it's probably better to die. Like if I'm thinking just about my own joy right now, then it would be better to die. I could escape kind of all the, the things of this life and also everything in this life because Paul's faith in Christ is, is strong and he believes that Jesus actually is better than everything else. It's better to just be with Jesus. Yet, he says, I'm confident, though, that I'm going to stay here. Why? 
because it's it's fruitful labor for me. Paul's saying, I know that if I stay here, it's going to result in this fruit for you, the Philippian church. So Paul is so confident in his own single-minded purpose of living to bear fruit in the gospel, to bear the fruit of Christ, which ultimately will point to the glory of Christ, that he says, if I live, this is going to honor Christ. Now, he can say that because he's essentially only living for one thing. (laughs) He is living for the glory of Christ. He is living for this fruitful labor that only Jesus can produce and so ultimately will point back to Jesus. He is single-minded in that purpose. He has just one purpose. If you were to ask Paul, Paul, what's the point of your life? He would just say, to glorify Jesus, to make Jesus appear to people to be supremely glorious. For Paul, that's what to live as Christ means. So I was, um, I was watching this, I was re-watching this documentary that I saw a long time ago. It was a, Jiro Dreams of Sushi. Have you guys heard of this documentary? So it's about this sushi guy. I don't know. <laughs> Jiro, I guess. You know, and um, it's crazy. because You know, and I like sushi. Like I, And before I saw this documentary, I forgot when it came out. It was like several years ago. But before I even saw this documentary, I liked sushi, right? I like sushi. It's one of the kind of foods that I enjoy. It's one of the, if we go out somewhere fancy, you know, or nice, I think sushi would be probably one of the things that I would prefer to spend, you know, a little more money on. And um, the thing is, when you watch it, the guy is like crazy. And I'm sure many sushi chefs are this way, but I have never been a sushi chef, so I don't know what's what goes on, you know, behind closed doors or what they do, you know, how they prep stuff. Right. But when you watch the documentary, you realize, wow, some of these guys like they spend a lot of time just like hitting seaweed against a thing like just over and over again, because that's what he does for many minutes of the documentary. I mean, they, they talk about how they've found a way to prepare rice, to keep it at the perfect temperature. There's times where he is moving, you know, individual grains of rice onto a piece of sushi, like like talking about that this ratio matters so much that you're moving like one piece of rice at a time to make it proper. And the thing is, it doesn't matter what it is, right? You may watch some kind of cooking show. You may watch, I don't know, Project Runway or something. Like you may watch something about something. Sport, you know, it can be sports like a documentary or design or, you know, whatever, art, any of these things. And when you see a person's dedication to a craft, when you see how much they care about it, it enhances the glory of that thing. Right, You're all of a sudden thinking, even though I liked sushi before, now I'm thinking, wow, this is really incredible and I have to eat this guy's sushi, you know, and there is something that makes you feel like there is real glory there to be beheld that you didn't realize before. And Paul says, here's how I know 
that Christ will be honored in my life because this is the only thing that I care about. This is what my entire life is going to be dedicated to. The fruitful labor of Jesus, of allowing people to know Jesus, to discover Jesus, to grow in Jesus, to be conformed to the image of Jesus, to grow in righteousness, the fruit of righteousness that will be born in people because of Jesus. That's the labor of my life. That's what my entire life is going to be about. And I think about, like, did Paul ever eat, you know, did Paul ever, like, drink something? Did he ever catch a sporting event? Like, I, you know, I wonder sometimes. Now, obviously, Paul ate, you know, he had to eat, he had to live. But did he ever, you know, like, did he ever hang out? Now, we don't know explicitly, and there's nothing in the Bible about that. But I suspect that he did. I suspect that Paul caught a race, you know, here and there, not just because he talks about it and, you know, he uses those analogies in Scripture, but because maybe all those things happened before he became Christian. But no, I think he did. But let me tell you, he probably did it seeking an opportunity to make Jesus appear glorious. Seeking an opportunity to advance the gospel. Like, that was the reason that he went. I don't think he ever, if he ever did go to some kind of sporting event, they had that kind of thing. I don't think he ever went thinking, I'm going to go because I deserve it. Or I'm going to go just because I feel like it. I think everything Paul ever did in his entire life after meeting Jesus was to glorify Jesus. Not like, not, I'm not saying perfectly, of course, but I think when Paul, like when Paul writes, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. I don't think Paul's being hyperbolic. I don't think he's just exaggerating and saying, hey, yeah, this is just some super idealistic thing that I'm just going to throw out there that nobody could ever possibly do. Because Paul actually did, like he was stoned. Okay, that sounds weird. He wasn't, he was hit by stones. Not that he he took some kind of substance. He was, he was literally, he was stoned in the face. Like he got hit in the face with stones and they thought he was dead. And then afterward, like to the point where he thought he, they thought he was dead. And afterward, he just went back into the same city to preach the gospel. He was on the run for his life, stuck in Athens. And like, what am I supposed to do? They were waiting. He was waiting for the people, for his guys, you know, to tell him basically, okay, it's okay to move to this or that city. And yet he found opportunity to preach the gospel. Right now, obviously, when he's writing this letter, he's in prison. And he considers it in many ways kind of a blessing because he finds opportunity to preach the gospel. This is the point of life. This is how we should endeavor to live, to make Jesus appear supremely glorious, to put the glory of Jesus on display. This is why we gather each week. This is why we sing songs of worship. This is why we sit under the teaching of God's word. It's to declare that the glory of Jesus, to show that. That's what life is about. This is the grand purpose for which God saved you. Now, here's the thing. 
Everyone aspires to be something, you know, to be somebody. Nobody aspires to be nobody, right? Like nobody has that dream. Like I just want to be a nobody and, you know, I just want to like – like this is why the, the trope works in uh, literature or movies or whatever, kind of like that, that Harry Potter-like story, right? Like you're a nobody and then you discover this fantastical world and you're a somebody. You're, you're one of the most significant somebodies ever, that turn in stories, in TV and movies and literature, like somebody who comes from nothing to become something, like we all connect with that. It's like every Disney story also, right? It's like every princess story, you know, it's every like diamond in the rough, right? It's like that idea, you're just kind of nothing and then you become something. Everybody connects to that. But, and I'm not even saying that that's a bad thing. I don't think that ambition is a bad thing. Uh, but we must ask ourselves at some point, to what end? Like, what's the purpose of that? What's the purpose of, what's the ultimate goal of that desire or ambition? Is it to make a few bucks you know, is it to feel financially secure? Is it to get a few pats on the back for some people to say, wow, I'm really impressed by all the things you can do? Is it to get a lot of pats on the back? You know, a lot of likes, a lot of followers, you know, 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, a million, 10 million. Like what is ultimately the point? And let's say you even get to whatever you think the point is and then what? Like, what, what will be the end? I think about somebody like, you know, like Jeff Bezos. He's like the richest dude, right? I think he's the richest. I think he's the richest dude. <laughs> he is, like, I think he's worth, like, 180-something billion dollars. Now, that's, that amount of money is not fathomable. It would reach higher, several times higher, Sorry, that was me. Several times higher than, you know, the, the International Space Station. Like, it would go out into... If you were just to stack that amount of money, it would go out into space somewhere. And I and sometimes you got to think, like, well, why is this guy still going? <laughs> like, what is the goal? Is the goal for Amazon to just, like, take over the world? You know, for, for robots to replace every, every human, you know, on the planet? Like, what's the... What is the goal? Because obviously that wouldn't be good for humanity. What is the goal ultimately? Like he doesn't need more money. He's got more money than any of us could ever spend in several lifetimes. What's the goal? Like what's the point? Let's say you become that, the head of your field, the, the best in the world at what you do, the richest, most famous, most respected, and then what? Now your answer to that might be, I don't know. I don't know, and then what? Or maybe I haven't thought that far. Tragically, if the glory of Christ is not what you've been living for, then something like that is probably what you've been living for. A dream to which the end is, I don't know. I don't know the ultimate goal. I don't know the ultimate purpose. I'm just kind of doing stuff. 
Paul channels his ambition into a single purpose. One that is not dependent on an amount of money or a socioeconomic status or a particular skill set or ability or talent or a birthright. It's not dependent on food or a cultural context or his health or his freedom or his life because even in death, he is going to live this purpose to show that Christ is supremely glorious. By the way, Paul's goal, his purpose, also wasn't to like evangelize the world or to take the gospel to every nation because if that were, then when he's in prison, he's going to think, oh, I'm being held back from my purpose in life. Or when he couldn't go to Asia, he's going to think, oh, I'm I'm being held back from my purpose in life. But even then he didn't think that because it wasn't dependent on any of that. For Paul, the purpose for which he existed was utterly unstoppable because no matter where he was, no matter whether he was healthy or sick or in wealth or in poverty, whether he's eating or sleeping or drinking or playing or running or sitting or resting or working, whatever he's doing, his purpose is to reveal Christ to be supremely glorious. That is what to live is Christ meant for Paul. Now, that's part of it. That's the first thing. And the second thing is this. It means, to live as Christ means, considering Jesus of incomparable worth. Because that's both the fuel and the key to making Christ appear supremely glorious. I'll say that again. It means considering Jesus of incomparable worth because that is both the fuel and the key to making Christ appear supremely glorious. Now let's, look, let's look at Philippians 3, 3 verse 7. We're just going to touch on this. We will eventually go through this passage in full, but we're going to just connect this back to what Paul is thinking when he's saying, In verse 21, to live is Christ and to die is gain. We can also look here, verse 7, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ Whatever was to Paul's gain before knowing Christ counted as a, he counted as loss he considered as loss for the sake of Christ everything that to, was to his credit outside of Jesus outside of knowing Jesus became loss right and we see this gain and loss terminology following Paul right throughout this letter so then to Paul The greatest gain that the world has to offer is a loss compared to just knowing Jesus. The best of the world. Even if he accomplished his dream, even if he had the greatest renown, even if he had all the wealth, even if he had everything that the world had to offer, compared to knowing Jesus, he considered that loss. In fact, he considers it, it says in verse 8, rubbish. And that word could really be translated as like 
dung or feces. It is waste. It's trash. For Paul, to live as Christ means to consider knowing Christ of incomparable worth. For we most magnify Christ when we consider him more satisfying than anything we have in life or anything we would lose in death. That's how Paul lived. So Paul didn't meet Jesus until he was in, like in his 30s. He's around the uh, same age as Jesus, roughly, or born around the same time. And it's crazy when you think about it. His, his life completely changed, right? He was living his life as a persecutor of the church. He was essentially against Jesus, like openly against Christians, the movement of Christianity. And then in his 30s, somewhere in his 30s, let's just say he's like in his mid-30s. In his mid-30s, he learns that everything he has lived his life for is trash. Can you imagine that? Mid-30s is kind of where a lot of us, mid, early mid-30s, that's kind of where many of us are, right? I'm slightly on the higher end of 30s. <laughs> but imagine, right? You discover today, the, the purpose, like everything I've lived for, it's all garbage. I'm going to just throw it away. Everything I've ever lived for, all my education, all my, you know, experience and my jobs and, you know, whatever. I've been on this career path, right? That was Paul. He's on this career path. He's actually excelling in his career path. Studied, un studied under Gamaliel. You know, well, you know, we'll go over some of this later. But for him, he's, he had this stuff and he, he was like, oh, I'm going this way. I'm going to succeed in this life. And then he meets Jesus. And he says, everything, all of that, I threw it away. Right, this is Galatians 2. It says, for through the law, I die to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. See, Paul deeply understands this notion of when you meet Christ, you die to everything else. Whatever was you before, I'm not saying your personality, you know, or your culture per se, but like this idea, because you've been living on a certain path, you've been living a certain way, thinking a certain thing, like having a certain framework of life, and then that collides with Jesus, and all of a sudden, everything's different. Everything has changed. See, for Paul, this, this single-mindedness for the glory of Jesus, it unlocks in him this profound sense of purpose and joy and meaning such that after he meets Jesus, there's just this one thing he lives for. Now, Paul doesn't die until like he's in his 60s, right? So for the next 30 or so years, he is just single. Like he has one thing that he lives for. He had a job also, by the way. He was a tent maker. So it's not like he didn't have a job. You know, he had a job. His job just wasn't his life. He had people he cared about. He had friends. They just weren't his purpose. 
if we don't pursue God in this way, let me put it this way. We got to be clear about what God claims about himself. Right? This is Matthew 10. We've looked at this a couple times, I think, in the past few months, but I'm just going to bring it up again. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me, and whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's do one more, okay? This is Luke 9. Luke 9, as they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Now, let me be clear about what Jesus is saying. He's saying, if you're going to come after me, come after me with everything. Now, he's not saying, come after me with everything because what I want is for you to be my begrudging slave and you're going to hate it and you have to just, it has to be all duty and discipline and obligation and guilt and that's why you have to do it because I said so. Like, that's not Jesus' pitch. Okay, Jesus' pitch is, come after me with everything because I'm worth more than everything. Come after me forsaking everything else because I'm worth more than everything else in your life combined. And Paul's testimony is, yep, that's true. Because I gave up everything for Jesus. And I have found way more giving up everything for Jesus than I had in my life before knowing him. That's what Christ has for you, church. That's the offer on the table. If you give up everything for him, you will find more than everything in him. However, the one who loves father or mother more than Jesus doesn't find that. The one who loves their children more than Jesus doesn't find that. The one who cares more about their job more than Jesus or the bottom line or their finances or what people think about them more than Jesus won't discover that. They're not going to find the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus. Now, even if we are able to declare alongside Paul to live as Christ and mean what he meant, we'll still have blind spots, we'll still make mistakes, we'll still sin, but at the same time, we will be led repeatedly to repentance and joy in the experience of God's grace, and we will continuously grow into who we are in Christ as image bearers of God and ambassadors of his lavish grace, and we will feel always a deep hope 
and a powerful purpose. Regardless of what race you are, what your job is, where you live, what status you have, what's your background, what's your story, what's your baggage, what's your hang-ups, that's what Christ has for you. That's where deep joy and incomparable satisfaction lie in in giving all that up to, to know Jesus. So I think, you know, the pandemic has exposed a lot about church. I mentioned all those issues at the top. It also happens to be an election year. Politics seems to have taken over all my feeds. Uh, There's a lot of division. I've seen some strange things on social media. People within the same church just going at it. And for many, it appears that what has been exposed about the church is that the church has been either indifferent or disconnected or ignorant or maybe racist, fake, caring about the wrong things. And for many, what has been exposed about church is that the gospel has somehow been insufficient. Like, sure, loving Jesus is great, but what about the poor? What about justice? What about inequities? What about what the government's doing? What about voting? What about left? What about right? What about religious freedom? What about discrimination? Like, there's so many things. Now, this is just my opinion, but in my opinion, what in my observation has been exposed about church is not primarily some kind of ignorance or um, lack of awareness about the needs or ills of society. I think what has been primarily exposed about the church in America is that many people who call themselves Christians, do not find Jesus glorious. That many of us, for many years, have been far more motivated by and interested in finding a career and a spouse and accumulating wealth and appearing cool or smart and in making a name for ourselves or in having nice things. That many who call ourselves Christians, have been far more interested in those things than in finding and making Jesus appear glorious. It's interesting because um, as the gospel moved through the early church, you know, it broke down barriers of race and class, Not to revolutionize the law or society or secular culture, but to demonstrate the power of Christ by living under a different law and a different way that was countercultural. And I say that because (laughs) I feel right now what the church is focused on is, you know, I saw this article the other day and the title of the article was, it's time to ask what your country can do for you. Right, because you know the famous saying, right, like, ask not what your country can do for you, ask what you can do for your country. This notion that it is our duty to think about kind of the greater collective good. And when we do that, there's more good for everybody. And then I, so I see this article, and that's the title, and I'm thinking, wow, that's like a really selfish idea, right? The idea that I should start thinking about what everybody else 
is doing for me. And I think, in part, the church has fallen into this thinking because we've been crippled by this dependence on the government, like an obsession with what the government's doing. And I don't, I don't, you know, this is, I don't want to get political, and I, this really does not apply to, or I think it applies to everyone, whether you're on the left or the right. Because instead of having this faith in Christ for the church to rise up and to just live out the gospel, to display Jesus as glorious in the midst of whatever the context is, whoever's in power, you know, whoever's the president, whoever's going to be the president, whoever, you know, whatever anybody says what certain politicians are doing or not doing or what the laws are. We're like so obsessed about because some people are like, oh, but there's this oppression going on. Like, why won't they let the churches open? Or why won't they let the churches sing? And then there's other people saying, well, we can't do anything for society unless the government does something. I'm not saying that we shouldn't care about what the government does. But do we really find Jesus as supremely glorious when we feel crippled by the government? And what do we say to our brothers and sisters in China? You know, in, in Beirut. Like, like, what do we say to them when we are saying for our own church, like, oh, but we really got to fix the, the government is the real issue. It's tragic that we have failed to stop and ask ourselves what we, the church, could accomplish if we actually had faith that Christ was more powerful than the government. It's tragic that some have often traded and perhaps wasted our petitions to God on prayers for some person to be elected instead of just praying that God himself would move and the church, with or without the aid of the government, would follow him. Do you think the culture or the world would stand a chance against the church if we all thought like Paul? Like, man, if I go to jail, I'm going to convert everybody in jail. Like, if I'm on the streets, then I get to preach the gospel to everyone on the streets. Like, if I'm in this or that neighborhood, then I get to, I get to go and advance the gospel in this or that neighborhood. If we considered our purpose in life to put the glory of Christ on display, if we considered that everything else in life was trash, compared to Christ. Church, this is what matters most. This is it. The glory of Jesus. That's what your whole life is supposed to be about. That's what to live is Christ means. And if you disagree with that, then I will gladly and respectfully and lovingly stand against you. If you think Christ is not enough, and before you dismiss that thought outright, consider whether or not you sincerely believe that Christ is enough, then I will graciously and generously oppose you. And if you believe that Donald Trump is the solution or that 
you know, Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are the solution, then I respectfully disagree. Kings and emperors have come and gone. They will come and go. And in the grand history that matters, what they accomplished for country will not matter much. What they or anyone has accomplished for God will stand the test of fire. And what they accomplish for self will burn with all the rest. Now I'll say this in closing. If you're in Christ, this is a reminder for us to lean into that incredible meaning and life that Christ has for us. The purpose of your family, the purpose of your marriage, the purpose of your work, your business, your money, your free time, your posts, your feeds, your art, your hobbies, your home, your neighboring, your everything is to glorify Jesus, is to both find Jesus supremely satisfying and to make him appear supremely glorious. That's the purpose of your life. Now, for those of you who don't feel that you have this kind of meaning in life, let me say this. Like, if you don't have this kind of outlook on death that says, even if I die, I win. And if you don't have this kind of outlook on life, this freedom in life to care really just about one thing. Paul was a very religious person, but he didn't know Jesus until that moment. And when he traded religion for the righteousness of Jesus and the new life that Jesus gives, he found life. He found that surpassing greatness of knowing Jesus, the kind of purpose and meaning that makes you feel like God has you alive for a reason. That every day means something. That grace is available to you right now because of what Christ has done. Because he died the death that we deserve, because he lived the life that we couldn't, because he has paid our penalty. That's the grace that Jesus offers us today, every day. He invites us into this glorious satisfaction and purpose if we would respond to him in faith. Real faith. Now, it doesn't have to be great faith, but it has to be real faith, not token faith, not it's Sunday so I'll go through the motions kind of faith. I'm talking about the real, scary, my life is going to change tomorrow kind of faith. Like something's going to happen as a result of this kind of faith. The small as a mustard seed, yet moving mountains kind of faith. That's not great faith. It's just genuine faith in a great God. Would you put that kind of faith in Jesus today? If you've never done it, or you have, but you feel like you've been far away, or you're doing it, but you want to continue to do it, would you put that kind of faith in Jesus? Really think about it, because your life might change. Your life might never be the same. 
Like the seasoning of the world might start to lose its flavor a little bit. You might start to notice people around you who are suffering. Your consumer tendencies might start to make you feel uncomfortable. Your self-pity might be crucified on the cross and be overwhelmed with a sense of compassion. Your cynicism might wash away under God's forgiveness and you might start to see Jesus as supremely, incomparably satisfying, glorious, worthy. I hope. Let's pray together. Jesus, we thank you that you are supremely glorious. I mean, so much more than we can even fathom, than we can even understand. And we thank you, God, that that, that's the case. We thank you that for the entirety of our lives, we will grow in how glorious we find you. God, that you will be increasingly beautiful, magnificent, and powerful, and amazing to us. If we have not found you that glorious, if we have not, for whatever reason, lived for that purpose, if we've been distracted or sidetracked because of society or the things that are happening in the world, if we have put our faith and our hope in things that are not you, we ask your forgiveness, God. We ask that you would graciously rebuke us, God. We ask that you would gently move us back onto the path of seeing you and discovering all the meaning and joy and life that you have for us every day, God. Every day from the most mundane of our moments to the most spectacular, uh, the most common to the most unique. God, we want to discover the glory of you in all of it. Please do much, God, with our small faith, as you always do. We entrust it to you. We thank you. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.